0: And so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
1: You are listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast,
0: where we talk about today's issues from a pastor's perspective, as well as calling America back to the faith of our fathers. Without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who...
1: here's your host wade Lentz and harold smith
2: wade how in the world are you i'm good harold how are you doing i'm doing good what people
0: don't know is we're not two and a half hours apart we're actually sitting side by side today in the legendary sanctuary of Beryl Baptist Church in Valonia, Arkansas, where many great men of God have preached, including yourself.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I love that intro. I really do. Uh, you know, yeah, normally we are miles apart doing a Zoom podcast episode, but today you're right here beside me, and that's, that's really cool. We are in for a treat today because we are Zooming with a special guest. We have today with us Joe Cassida who is a pastor at Solid Rock Baptist Church in Maryland Heights, Missouri. Uh, Brother Joe, it's so good to have you with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, we have uh, the last year or so just really enjoyed your podcast episodes and your YouTube channel that you have that's entitled Preach Better. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later on. That's where I was introduced to you. I want us to If you would, just give us a little background, a little introduction of maybe where you grew up and how you got into the ministry and where you are at now. Okay.
1: Um, Well, I'll try to distill it all into a 35-minute episode. (laughs) Uh, I grew up in a military family. My dad was an Air Force man, a career Air Force man. Uh, So my upbringing has always been Baptist mostly independent fundamental Baptists with the occasional Southern Baptist church thrown in when necessary. (laughs) Uh, We live mostly out West uh, in places like Texas, Montana, Colorado. Um, And the, you know, when you're in the military, you move, or in the air force anyways, you move every three to five years. So every three to five years necessitated the need for visiting churches to find one to join. Uh, over the course of my childhood, had a lot of experience and visiting a lot of different Baptist churches. So the churches of my childhood were Southern Baptist, uh, Baptist Bible Fellowship, GARBC, uh, and some independent fundamental Baptist. And uh, then the last uh, church that we attended before I flew the nest is was a Hiles Anderson graduates church in uh, in Colorado. Mm. And that was actually the first time I had ever been introduced to the Jack Hiles uh, bubble of fundamentalism. I didn't know anything about him. And then through a sequence of events, we started uh, attending a Church of Ohio's Anderson graduate. And uh, it was also about the same time that the Lord started dealing with me about preaching and I did not want to be a preacher. Um, everything that I thought about preachers was that they were all fat and they were all bald. And I didn't mm, want to be hey,
0: easy now. Easy.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I've, I've managed to hold to both of those prophecies of myself. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're a teenage boy, that's the last thing you want to be. Um, right. And so I just I had no there was no appeal to me uh, for the ministry, but there was nevertheless an undeniable drawing to it. And if you've ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. And it's very hard to explain. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's the last thing you want to do, but it's everything you want to do. Right. Right. And so I wrestled with that and wrestled with that and uh, prayed about it and spoke to my parents about it. And, you know, most uh, Christian boys probably don't have long and in-depth conversations with their parents about ministry and, you know, uh, those types of discussions, but I do remember my, my mom saying that if I wanted to uh, prepare my mind for ministry, that I should read Charles Spurgeon. And uh, so my, my brother at the time was interested in ministry also. And, and I think he purchased a set of uh, the treasury of David by Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and he began to read it. And that was my first introduction of Charles Spurgeon was he so, was kind of this uh, old-fashioned Baptist preacher that knew what he was talking about. And if you want to do uh, prepare yourself, you should read after him also. So mm-hmm. let me get this no, straight.
0: Go ahead. You you encountered Jack Howells and Charles Spurgeon at roughly the same time in life.
1: Correct. Ah, <laughs> correct. Um, and you can imagine then, you know, here I am, I'm a mushy headed teenager. Sure. You know, I was naive enough to think that most Baptists were, we're kind of along the same lines, you know, um, the old, the old fashioned guys were old fashioned. We're kind of just the same thing in a new age. Right. Um, and so then as I began to wrestle with this more and more, I counseled with my pastor and I I must say to his credit, uh, a lot of Hiles Anderson guys, not a lot. It's not uncommon for Hiles graduates to, uh, pressure their young people to join the ministry. Um, my pastor did not, mm-hmm. uh, but he was very much um, uh, leading me in, in how to discern the call of God without pressuring me. You know, he, he never made any insinuations that, uh, you know, if you're not serving the Lord full time in ministry, then you're a, a second class Christian. Right. I don't, I think some guys do uh, insinuate that the way they pressure their young people into going into the ministry. So my, my pastor did not do that. Um, but long story short, I, I finally did uh, surrender to to preach, I guess is the way we often term it. Mm-hmm. I think it's a gifting that the Lord gives us. Um, and with the gifting comes a desire that, I mean, this is just something you want to do and you can't explain why. And with that desire also comes an enabling. Yes, uh, And of course, all of these things grow and are nurtured over time, but they are planted, I believe, by the Holy Spirit and the individual whom the Lord is calling in ministry into preaching ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I, that happened to me. I was about 17, uh, April the 8th, uh, 1992. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have this on my desk. It's a Polaroid of the roadside memorial where I uh, committed my life to full time ministry. Wow. Um, and my pastor was with me when, when, I prayed. And again, I appreciate the fact that he was not a man who pressured me to get there, right? but rather, uh, nurtured that and helped me understand the answers to my questions, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But he was a Hiles Anderson graduate. And of course, with that comes the recommendation to attend Hiles Anderson. And so he, he, again, he didn't pressure me to do that, but he certainly recommended Hiles Anderson to me. And I ended up going to Hiles Anderson for my Bible college training.
0: Well, how did you end up going from a Hiles Anderson graduate to a doctrines of grace Baptist preacher? I mean, that's, (laughs) that's something that John R. Rice had edited out of every episode of the sword of the Lord or every, (laughs) every, not episode, every edition of the sword of the Lord. All of those things were trimmed out of Spurgeon's sermon. So how did you get them back in there?
1: Okay, well. There were a number of different epiphanies I had along the way, if I could put it that way. Okay, let me say first of all that that I do not regret attending Hiles Anderson College, um, and even more so now that I understand the sovereignty of God in all things, can I appreciate how I ended up there? Yeah. Uh, and I should also say that I have no ill will against any of my my colleagues, my college peers, my teachers, professors. Um, As crazy as things seem, and a lot of it's very true, uh, there are a lot of good and godly people uh, who've been involved in the ministry there. And of course, the greatest blessing is I met my wife there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So praise the Lord for that. In addition to that, though, a lot of lifelong friendships were started there in college. A lot of the men I went to school with are in my position now. Yeah. Um, where they've come to understand doctrines of grace. And, you know, a lot of the other men are are still very much in that that uh certain IFB mode of operation. And I still get along with them. But going to Howells Anderson College and coming from a background of going to, to churches that were running around 50 all of my life, it is almost a, a culture shock to To get taken out of uh, a setting like that and placed in the largest Sunday school in the world, and you know, it was it would be said sort of uh, jokingly that there were more people in First Baptist Church's bathrooms than there were in a lot of churches, mm. and and that that was true. Yeah, uh, it was just so big, and it takes your breath away when you're not used to it. And so immediately, there is a mixture in my heart of skepticism, because, you know, why is this so big? And then at the same time, you can't help but be in awe. You know, I saw more baptisms in two weeks there than I did probably my entire life. Yes. And so if you don't run away immediately, you're going to be enraptured by the bigness of it all. Mm -hmm. And as a young man who wanted to be successful in ministry, and knowing a little bit about Charles Spurgeon, who also had a very large church, I'm right. thinking, wow, this is, man, this is where it's at. And this is where I need to be. And so I began to, you know, be fully invested in learning ministry there. And But then I, be, I began to, to see some weakness, some weak spots in the armor, so to speak. And one, the beginnings of my, my uh, what's the word for it, apprehension to the whole philosophy there was We were having a, I was involved in the bus ministry on Saturdays, which was in Chicagoland area. And on occasion, about twice a year, we would have, uh, we would go to the projects where it was very dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago. Uh, The project buildings were about 12 to 16 stories. And it was just filled with people, uh, very poor people, and a lot of children and we would have a saturday where we would go and we would we would borrow a local church and uh we would use their facility they would grant us the the usage of their facility and we would run buses a few blocks away to the projects and have multiple services a day the, and that's all very good but it was very much intended to produce baptisms as a statistic And so it was, it was, it was like a highly oiled military operation. And, and there were several ministry groups that would go out and do this. In my ministry group alone on a Saturday afternoon, we would have a couple hundred baptisms. Wow. And, you know, the first time you do that, it, it is very, you feel, man, we're really doing something here. good. I mean, look what we're reaching. We're reaching these people, you know, and we're doing something that their local churches aren't doing. And we would sort of remark how that to borrow the church's baptistries, we had to clean out the baptistry because they hadn't used them in years. Yeah. And we were probably baptizing more on one Saturday than they had in the past decade. Mm. And so there's a certain amount of even arrogance that goes with that experience. At least it, it it, it can easily turn into arrogance and pride. It did for me. But then one Saturday we were doing this and I was in a project building. And the church had been doing this for numerous years, uh, going once or twice a year to these areas and holding these services to garner more baptisms. And I knocked on a, a, a door and a little, a little boy answered the door. He was about eight or nine. And he sees me. Here I am, a young uh, college student, shirt, tie, Bible under my arm. He sees me and he rolls his eyes into the back of his head and and very sincerely, he says, do I have to get baptized again? Mm. And so I didn't even have to introduce myself. I didn't have to tell him who we were. And I could just tell from his reaction that he is, here's a child who's gotten caught up in the gears of our machinery to produce numbers. Yeah. And he, he knew why I was there more than I knew why I was there. Wow. And. So I, I said to the little boy, you know what? Uh, why don't you just go ahead and stay home? And it, it kind of jarred me a lot. And it it pulled part of the veneer off, and I began to see really what I was in I was involved in. Mm-hmm. Now uh, that was this first awakening, if I may. Um, and there were others, but I began to to pull away from this numbers manufacturing ministry philosophy, uh, and I was still, I finished my my education there, and I was still involved in the bus ministry, but I began to to resent being pushed to produce numbers, and there was a few other episodes where doing this came back to bite me, where I would try to to, to produce numbers for the ministry, baptisms, and conversions, and professions of faith, or whatever, and invariably it would, it would harm the people involved. I I would lose families over this Mm. people that I had been working hard to, 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 to bring to Christ and to get in church. They would get caught up in this. Like I mentioned earlier, the gears of this machinery and they would get crushed. And it was like a machine on one end, the numbers would get spit out, but on the other end was the refuse of the, the human material, if I may. Where the families were no longer wanted to be involved with me, they, they no longer wanted to see my face. They would do nothing; would have nothing to do with me because they got offended along the way. Right. I remember one time I was dealing with a young man who was on the fence about Jehovah's Witnesses or the Gospel Truth. He was in his twenties, and I got him to come to church with me. And I knew that he wasn't ready. He he wasn't ready to to forsake false doctrine and embrace gospel truth, but I felt like the Lord was drawing him. And on a Sunday night, um, he, he was pressured, not by me, but by a staff member to go down to the front of the church and make a profession of faith. And I knew that he was not ready. I knew that he wasn't saved yet. But if you know anything about the methodology there, it can be very hard to say no. And so, you know, I brought him down to the front And um, I knew the whole time that this was not a good decision. Somebody asked, what is he doing? You know, at the front, the workers at the front. And I said, you know, this is so-and-so, and he'd like to make a profession of faith. And then they tried to get him to be baptized. And I knew because his family is Jehovah's Witness. I knew that this was something that he would run from. He was not ready. And he refused. He refused to be baptized. He didn't even want to be down at the front making a profession of faith. I knew that he shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And all the work that I had invested in him, the prayers, the pleading, the, if I may, debating with his family over Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine, all of that evaporated in a moment when he began to realize that uh, he's being caught up in a process. We went home that Sunday night and I never saw him again. Uh, I think the kids talk about being ghosted. <laughs> he, he ghosted me for the rest of the time in that I was in that neighborhood, I could never catch him uh, at home. And when I did, he was very cold and didn't want to talk to me. And it's because he got hurt. That was another episode in my, it began to, to really incense me against this, this production of numbers for the sake of numbers. Right. Uh, But you know, at the time uh, and you guys interrupt if I'm talking too long. Uh, But at the time I was several years into it. Money has been spent, uh, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind: if I don't finish my education here, where would I go? You know, and so, and it, you're always thinking along the way. Well, I can just spit out the bones, you know, and I'm going to finish my education and go on my merry way, and that's what I did. Man, I finished, came to St. Louis to start a church, and I began to realize very quickly that. Starting a church and being involved in the bus ministry are very different things. Um, and I was having to, to learn how to do something that I don't think my college education prepared me for. I should qualify that statement by saying a lot of men who went to Hiles Anderson started churches and did a lot better job than I did. Um, and they would say that, that perhaps they, they were prepared sufficiently at Hiles Anderson. Um, And perhaps most of the blame falls upon me, Uh, but I came to St. Louis and, you know, was knocking on doors and passing out tracks and inviting people to come and really had a hard time gaining traction. And I just realized that yanking prayers out of people does not put them in the church to grow and in grace and become solid Christians. The salesmanship soul winning tactics does not work. It produces, it produces professions of faith and numbers, but it does not build the church. Right. Um, and when you're trying to build a church from scratch, uh, you begin to realize you've got to figure out how to do this in another way. At the same time, there was a pastor in the St. Louis area, a good man. He's since passed away, but he was very much in the Hiles network of, of people. Uh, he began to uh, emphasize Baptist history in his ministry, um, and he knew that I could draw a little bit. Uh, and so he asked me to illustrate a Baptist history coloring book for him. To do that, I had to research the characters that he was assigning me. And I began to, to notice that many of these characters, if they lived in the 1800s or 1700s, were Calvinistic Baptists. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is interesting. About the same time, you remember the fighting fundamentalist forums? Yes. <laughs> this pastor told me, he's like, Joe, you got to get on the fighting fundamentalist forums. The Calvinists are on there and they're trying to claim that Spurgeon was one of their own. (laughs) And I thought, what, man, we can't let these guys do that. And, you know, so I got on the fighting fundamentalist forums and that was my exposure um, to the fact that a lot of people didn't agree with Jack Hiles on a lot of things. And I thought, what is going on here, man? These people are so wicked. Uh, And I can't believe they're saying these things about Charles Spurgeon and his his theology. I mean, that man was a soul winner, and Calvinists right. aren't soul winners, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so, but it, you know, it's one of those things where you get offended, but it does kind of pique your curiosity. And I started going back to reading Spurgeon again. One of the books that we were required to read in college was Lectures to My Students. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I had that with me and I began to read it again, and I was becoming more and more interested in Spurgeon's preaching and his ministry philosophy. And I started seeing a very, very much a distinction between the way Jack Hiles did things and the way that Charles Spurgeon did things. And I wanted to know what that distinction was. And as I began to to understand it more, I realized I I was probably needing to make a decision about which of these ministry philosophies I should follow. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't quite know what that meant, but I knew that I was coming to a crossroads. And I began to study more and more of the characters from Baptist history. And I was really hungry to know what Baptists used to believe. Right. And so I went to a conference one time. It was a Baptist history conference. And there was one of the the speakers was a man who is famous amongst IFB circles for being a Baptist historian. There was a lot of preaching in the conference about Baptist history, but a lot of preaching in the conference against Calvinism. And by this time, I had become somewhat literate with Calvinistic doctrine. And I noticed during the the breaks between the sessions that 90% of the books available for sale were Calvinistic books. I mean, on the book table, there was A.W. Pink. There was Octavius Winslow. There was Charles Spurgeon. I mean, the list goes on. John Bunyan. The list goes on and on and on. And all of these doctrines of grace, Baptist preachers on the book table. But then from the platform, there was continual denunciation of Calvinistic doctrine. And I knew that there was a a contradiction here. And so they had a Q and a session. (laughs) Uh And I, I asked the question, my question was if a, if a man wanted to know what historic Baptists believe Who should he read? And the answer given to me from a very anti-Calvinistic preacher was, I suggest you read John Gill. If you know anything about John Gill, man, that man is a Calvinist with a capital C. Um, And so I was recommended to read John Gill. And I knew who he was at the time. And it just kind of shocked me. Like, do you guys know what you're talking about? And so one more break between conference sessions, and I asked this leading historic or this leading Baptist historian, I said, look, wasn't Charles Spurgeon a Calvinist? And he said to me with a straight face, no, he wasn't a Calvinist. He just wasn't an Arminian. And I knew at that point that I was dealing with a a certain disingenuousness or perhaps very dangerous naivety Mm hmm. And so I realized that I wasn't going to find the answers uh, from that network of men. And I began to do more study on my own. And uh, I did that. And about the year 2005, 2006, I come to realize that uh, the doctrines of grace were biblical. Many of them I had already embraced and didn't realize that that's what Calvinists believe. Of course, I was faced with this dilemma. Now, I'm a Calvinist. I have a church. A lot of people in my church, I don't think are Calvinists. Some of them, I don't think would care. I want to lead my church in this direction of the doctrines of grace. What do I do?
0: Joe, I hate to cut you off, but I think we're going to have to pick up this in part two. So in part two, we're going to be talking about now that you've understood the doctrines of grace, you've came out of this. What's it like to be a doctrines of grace pastor planning the Hiles Anderson church that you are now pastoring. So, I've thoroughly enjoyed this thus far. You too, Wade. I I really have. I I hate to jump in and break it it, in the middle, but I think it's the best thing to do. And we'll just pick up in part two where you are understood the doctrines of grace. You've come to that conclusion by just a study of church history. And now how do you get from where you were then to where you are now? And Mm -hmm. so we'll pick it back up in part two.